An important part of our Unitarian Universalist heritage is the tradition of both a free pulpit and a free pew or free red chairs or what have you. The freedom of the pulpit means that I'm encouraged to preach whatever I think will be significant and meaningful for us to consider, and the freedom of the pew means that you're not expected to believe or do something simply because it's been said from this pulpit or any other pulpit or podium. That being said, once a year, members of this congregation contribute all sorts of items and events and offers and opportunities to our annual auction. And each year, my contribution is to preach a sermon on the topic of the highest bidder's choice. Whatever topic you are passionate about or think would be particularly challenging or meaningful or provocative. So if there's a sermon you're hoping to hear, our upcoming auction may be your chance. Last year, Steve Berté was our highest bidder on the auction sermon, and he chose the topic of beware liberal fundamentalism. I'll just say, like, we need to keep the fun in fundamentalism, right? So uh, part of what he had in mind was the definition of liberal fundamentalism in Nathan Walker's fascinating and provocative and actually quite short book titled Cultivating Empathy, and the subtitle very much related to what Megan was talking about in the meditation. The subtitle is The Worth and Dignity of Every Person Without Exception. And basically what Dr. Walker's doing in this book is taking us through quite a few examples of when it's hard to, you want to make an exception for that person. So he walks you through that. And Dr. Walker defines liberal fundamentalism as when we who take pride in being open-minded close our minds when we become what we set out against. And we Unitarian Universalists are part of a classical liberal tradition that does treasure open-mindedness, but at an even more foundational level, classical liberalism at its root is from the Latin word liber, meaning free. So we theological liberals, we tend to have this gut-level inclination toward liberty, toward freedom, toward saying to each individual, you know what, you do you, right? Whatever costume you want to wear, whatever you're into, you do you. And that big tent, we are this big tent with lots of room for individual differences. And that big tent includes that there has been room historically within Unitarian Universalism and there is room today for what I sometimes call people who are conservative in the best sense of that word. Caring about the conservation of nature, upholding the beauty of tradition and rituals that have stood the test of time, reminding us of the importance not only of individual freedom, but also of community of authority, of sanctity, of loyalty. And we do risk becoming liberal fundamentalists, of becoming narrow-minded and bigoted if we succumb to the temptation to prejudge other people based on stereotypes instead of who they actually are as a person, getting to know their story and where they're coming from. That being said, as we prepare to reflect on the dynamics of liberal fundamentalism, allow me to be clear that there are important limits. There are beliefs and actions that are beyond the pale. And drawing healthy boundaries does not, at least I would argue, make one a liberal fundamentalist. It merely means being clear about the lines we cannot cross without sacrificing our core values. One classically liberal way of drawing such boundaries is um, summarized in the quote that your right to swing your fist ends when it hits my face, right? 
I affirm your freedom all day long. Swing your fist to your heart's content. But there's a limit, there's a line, if that fist swinging ends in assault to my person or to another person. The importance of this boundary became horrifyingly, horrifyingly relevant this past week with headlines about pipe bombs being mailed to perceived opponents of our current president and as we learned of this um, assault on a Jewish sanctuary during a sacred rite of passage, truly a sacrilege. Such attempts at violent suppression of diversity are textbook examples of what is sometimes called illiberalism, those things that really are beyond the pale of what should be allowed in a civil society. And if you spent much time debating these various ideas, you may have noticed that it's about this time and how these arguments tend to go that, um, that when liberals start to draw healthy boundaries, that someone will accuse liberals of being hypocrites, of being liberal fundamentalists, of being so-called tolerant of everything except intolerance. And I usually say, yes, that's, that's pretty much about right. Uh, the best touchstone I have found for articulating why that's maybe not problematic is from the late philosopher Karl Popper. In 1945, the year after World War II ended, it's no secret, it's, no, um, it's very clear why he was interested in writing this right after World War II, right after the world had globally wrestled with the rise of fascism and authoritarianism. He wrote an important book called The Open Society and Its Enemies. One of the most significant parts of that book is a passage about him wrestling with what he calls the paradox of tolerance, this whole thing of when do we who are tolerant not be tolerant of intolerance. And this paragraph has deep echoes to our own time, especially this past week. I invite you to consider it. Papa writes, if we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance along with them. In this formulation, he says, I do not imply that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies. We have a lot of room for free speech, but we don't allow you to shout fire in a crowded theater, right? It's another classic example. He says, as long as we can counter intolerance by rational argument, keep intolerance in check by public opinion, suppression would be unwise, But we should claim the right to suppress intolerance, if necessary, even by force, for it may easily turn out that the intolerant are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument. They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument. They may call rational argument fake news. I added that part. Uh, And teach them to answer arguments by use of fists or pistols. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. We should claim that any movement preaching radical intolerance places itself outside of the law. And we should consider incitement to violent intolerance uh, and and persecute it as criminal in the same way that we should consider incitement to murder, incitement to kidnapping, incitement to the revival of the slave trade as criminal. So taking into account Popper's perspective, I am on one hand eager to support nonviolent activism that tries to accomplish these same goals. 
On the other hand, I think it's also important to reject false equivalencies that seek to call liberals hypocrites or liberal fundamentalists when when liberals are simply trying to defend the minimal boundaries needed to maintain an open, diverse, civil, humane society. This issue gets even more complicated when the government itself is being illiberal. I'll say more about that next week in my sermon on the people versus democracy. What do we do when the people, using a democratic process, are voting for illiberalism? So we'll, but more about that next week. Uh, For now, uh, early voting is open in many of the places that you live, so please prioritize and encourage everyone you know to practice our fifth UU principle of practicing democracy and vote on the side of love. And so now, having spent some time exploring what liberal fundamentalism is not, I want to be sure to bring one other important book by the Reverend Fred Muir that Steve reminded me about in his description of what he had in mind with this Beware Liberal Fundamentalism auction topic. Last year, Fred retired after serving as the minister of the UU congregation in Annapolis for 34 years. Fred has long been recognized as a leader of, in Unitarian Universalism on the continental level. And two years ago, he edited a collection of essays titled Turning Point, Essays on a New Unitarian Universalism. And his two contributions to that anthology were titled A Trinity of Errors, I Church Revealed. And he spells that I Church with a lowercase i like iPhone, you know, that ironically lowercase i. Right, with a very narcissistic phone like a device like the iPhone. Uh, so, uh, I Church Revealed, and on the Trinity of Promises, the Promises of Unitarian Universalism. I spent a, long t- a lot of time reflecting on Fred's perspective a few years ago when he was first kind of working out these ideas, and I appreciate Steve uh, inviting us to reflect on these uh, perspectives anew. I'll start with Fred's critique and then move to his invitation of a better way. So after being immersed in Unitarian Universalism for decades, Fred has identified three examples of what could be called liberal fundamentalism, three ways in which extreme forms of our highest values can get perverted and actually become stumbling blocks to us being our best selves, especially collectively. He writes back that first, we are being, as a people, held back and stymied. Really, we are being held captive, he writes, by a persistent, pervasive, disturbing, and disruptive commitment to extreme individualism that misguides our ability to act and engage in changing times. So he's saying there's ways in which, uh, it's, it's what's sometimes called the tyranny of the minority, feeling like we have to satisfy everyone's individual needs that can distract us from our larger mission. He says, second, we cling to a UU exceptionalism that is often insulting to others and undermines our good news. I think the parallel there, it can be hard to see that in ourselves, but I I at least personally find it easier to see when I think about the ways in which a UU exceptionalism can parallel a pernicious American exceptionalism. Do you know that bumper sticker that I love my country, but I think we should start seeing other people? So it's like that. Unitarian Universalism is great, but it's not the best or only way of being in the world. And third, he says, we refuse to acknowledge and treat our allergy to authority and power, though all symptoms compromise a healthy future. What I understand Fred to be saying first is to, again, beware of the ways that that individual freedom that is so deeply at the core of who we are as a people and our DNA, that can inhibit us from joining together to act for peace and justice as we need to do now more than ever. 
Second, Fred has given decades of his life to Unitarian Universalism, so it is from a place of deep love that he takes the risk of naming that second form of fundamentalism uh, that can cause you used to sometimes act as if our way is the only way. Uh, to name another obvious thing, I wouldn't be standing before you today as a UU minister if I didn't think this tradition were of deep value. I wouldn't have jumped through all the hoops. Megan wouldn't be jumping through all the hoops that she's been jumping through now. But I appreciate Fred's warning of the ways that that rightful pride and the really good things we have and can do can turn into this exceptionalism that's really a turnoff to others who aren't UUs. It can also... Um, uh, inhibit us from building the partnerships that we need to build. So it can lead us to basically be like, we're here, everyone should just come to us instead of realizing the ways that we need. We ultimately must work in coalition for collective liberation if we're going to build the world that we dream about. Third and finally, Fred names the way that our liberal commitment to individual liberty can devolve into what he calls an allergy to authority. That you come into any authority figure and you're just like, achoo, right, you gotta, gotta run away. Is there any authority in this room? I got, I got, I got to leave immediately, right? Uh, so certainly, um, we have many inspiring examples from our history in which that anti-authoritarian instinct has served us deeply and powerfully well in resisting courageously against corruption and injustice at the highest levels. But Fred is also inviting us to notice the ways that that same instinct of just. Uh, Every, again, everyone just kind of being divided and having no, no sort of set institution or nothing that um, is authoritative that can inhibit our ability to build healthy communities, healthy institutions. Along these lines, I sometimes joke that we actually aren't an anarchist collective. Not that there's anything wrong with anarchist collectives, we just actually aren't one, right? Uh, so all of that is the bad news, the ways that what we rightly take pride in, if taken to an extreme, can begin to resemble that which we set out against. So what's the good news? For Fred, the good news is that the freedom and liberty that are at the heart of our liberal tradition does not have to be merely freedom from various constrictions. That's incredibly important, right? Freeing yourself from stuff that is unduly holding you back. But it can also be freedom for various constrictions. Do you know that's a really important distinction? Freedom from versus freedom for. I always think of the adage, have you really been cast free? I mean, have you really been set free or have you just been cast adrift? Right? Which is it? So what would it look like to really, having gotten ourselves free from things, to say, what are we for? And how can we work together to use our freedom with people we trust to turn our dreams into deeds? So for Fred, the Trinity of Promises looks like a shift from an isolated individualism of just freedom for to a freely chosen interdependence with a plate people of mutual trust and support who can amplify our values. I, I hope and expect that's one reason you're here this morning, is you want to be part of something larger than yourself. You know, I, I tell people regularly, we have to be better than brunch, right? We have to be better than staying in your pajamas and watching Netflix, right? That that's part of why we show up here, because we, together we are stronger and, and we amplify our values together. It's a move from an arrogant exceptionalism that we're the best and other people should come to us to this generosity of spirit that moves us outward beyond the walls to, to serve other people and to act for justice. And ironically, that actually becomes attractive. By getting outside of these doors, that's actually more attractional than just being like, we're really great, come, come join us, right?
It's a move from a reflexive allergy to all authority figures to a creative, imaginative openness to the value of different forms of leadership and governance to form follows function. Do we need hierarchy here or not? What's skillful? What isn't? So depending on the needs of the project, community, and organization, sometimes hierarchy is helpful, sometimes a flat, networked, non-hierarchical approach. So being open and flexible and free around that. At its heart, Fred's call is for us to freely choose to live into the full promise of who we can be at our best as Unitarian Universalists. Uh, in conversation with Steve about this topic of liberal fundamentalism, I was also reminded of a story I know that many of you read and were inspired by. It was published a few years ago in the Washington Post about Derek Black, similar to the story shared earlier by Megan. Uh, Black is the only child of the founder of the Internet's largest racist hate group site and the godson of David Duke, uh, former KKK Grand Wizard. In theory, one could make a good case in advance that given Derek Black's background, he was destined to be a hopeless racist the rest of his life, and why even bother talking to that guy? But in studying the story of his conversion to a more open-minded worldview, it's clear that at least two major dynamics were at play, and I think they're actually both significant. One was the force of exclusion, and one was the force of inclusion, playing together in some really interesting ways that caused him to change his mind. Part of what caused him to consider changing his mind was the cost of being excluded. The racist views he had learned at home resulted in a real social ostracism in his college. And that was part, but I think, so exclusion was an important factor, but I think if he had only been excluded, he just would have doubled down and he would have um, been even more entrenched in his bigotry. However, college also presented him with some important tastes of what inclusion can feel like across difference that gave him a glimpse of a different way of being in the world. He experienced firsthand that these racial minorities he had been taught to hate in person were actually in person nothing like what he had been told. Uh, growing up, in particular, and this part is especially devastating after yesterday's mass shooting, his heart was opened by Jewish students at his college inviting him, this famous white supremacist, to join them at their weekly Shabbat dinner, where he got to know Jews in person instead of these stereotypes that he had learned on the internet. Importantly, they were only willing to risk that invitation once they had clear evidence that as repugnant as Black's racist views were, he did not have any record or seeming inclination toward physical violence. The story reminds me of the four practices we learned from Dr. Brene Brown a few weeks ago, that people are actually hard to hate close up. So move in. To speak truth to bullshit, but to be civil while you're doing it as much as you can to hold hands with strangers, and to approach this life with a strong back, with a soft front, and with a wild heart. For now, I'll conclude in that spirit by inviting you to hear one of my favorite poems that always challenges me to open back up and search for creative possibilities uh, whenever I find myself tempted to be in a rigid fundamentalism. You know, they say that when when the only tool you have is a hammer or a fist, everything starts to look like a nail. So that when I find myself in that place, that I need to open back up so that I can use some other tools uh, in my tool belt. 
this poem I find really helpful. It's called The Place Where We Are Right. It's written by Yehuda Amachai. Amakai is widely considered Israel's greatest modern poet, and this poem is written out of his decades of experience of living in this incredibly sad and tragic tension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He writes, from the place where we are right. Think about what that feels like in your heart, that time when you know you're right. I sometimes think when I read this poem, well, I'm not sure I'm right, but I'm pretty sure they're wrong, right? There's that too. We wrestle with this. But he says, from the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. Because from the place where we are right, that place is hard and it's trampled like a yard. He says, but doubts, doubts and love dig up the world like a mole, like a plow and a whisper, a whisper will be heard where the ruined house once stood.